So this week's episode is going to be different, but I think the majority of you will find it really interesting. I went to a local used and rare bookstore last week and I found this very unique book. It's titled Final Exits, The Illustrated Encyclopedia of How We Die. This book is about 400 pages long. Obviously, I'm not going to read the whole thing because that would take like 14 hours, but I've picked out the most interesting causes of deaths in this book, the most interesting phenomenons, whatever, and I'm going to read Michael's writing, then read additional details that I could find. If you like this episode a lot and you want more, there's an extra 20 minutes on Patreon, and you can find that at patreon.com forward slash truecrimecam in the description. All right, let's get into it. So let's of course start with A. I thought this one was really weird. Ambulance chasers. So in the early part of the 20th century, ambulance services were frequently operated by local funeral parlors. There was a slight conflict of interest. Funeral-sponsored ambulances were known to take their time transporting the sick to the hospital. By the 1930s, most ambulance services were independent of funeral homes and competed to get the ill or injured to the hospital at record speeds. Many taxi drivers were sought out by ambulance companies because they knew the roads and without much training were plopped into the driver's seat of a large vehicle with a siren. There were 300% more head-on collisions and sideswipes of ambulances than any other commercial vehicle on the road in the cities during the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Today, most emergency medical technicians, EMTs, are a part of the fire department, yet 60% of accidents still occur at intersections where ambulance drivers try to get away with a rolling stop, and approximately 1,795 people die as a result of ambulance crashes each year. So, I'm assuming the author got this number from combining all ambulance fatalities across the globe, because in America, it's much lower. The National Safety Council states that in 2021, 198 people died in crashes involving emergency vehicles. And this doesn't include just ambulances, this is police vehicles and fire trucks as well. And most of those deaths involved police vehicles, 135 of them, while ambulances accounted for 39 of the total deaths. Fire trucks were involved in 24. Okay, the next cause of death is amusement parks. So Michael Largo gives kind of a background of how amusement parks came to be. Then he goes on to say that permanent amusement parks flourished, and by 1920, there were over 2,000 parks across the country. But with little or no regulation, fatalities and deadly mishaps were a common occurrence. Everything was made of wood, so fire was a constant threat. In 1911, Dreamland, the first Coney Island amusement park, completely burned down. That year alone, 2,120 deaths at amusement parks, carnivals, and circuses were recorded. And then there's a little section that he writes called No One Dies at Disneyland. Despite the fact that millions have vacationed at Disney parks since 1955, almost no one has died at any of them. At least they weren't declared dead until they left the property, as it was in 1985 when a girl was crushed to death under the wheels of a tour bus in the Disneyland parking lot. She was pronounced dead on the scene by EMTs, although the death certificate bore the name of the nearest hospital as the place where declaration of death was certified. Mark M. holds the honors as the first person killed at the, quote, happiest place on earth. In May of 1964, Mark, age 15, undid his protective harness and attempted to stand on the Matterhorn bobsleds, but his balance wasn't great and he fell out of the car to the track below. 
He died from internal injuries and was officially pronounced dead once off the park grounds. In June of 1973, Bob D., 18, of Brooklyn, and his 10-year-old brother hid out in the park after it closed. At Frontierland, they managed to stay on Tom Sawyer Island by climbing a fence that separated a fake burning cabin from the rest of the attraction. But after a few hours, the stunt lost its appeal, so they tried to swim across the river to get off the island. The younger brother did not know how to swim, so Bob hoisted his brother on his back. They got only halfway when he went under and drowned. The two-mile-per-hour people mover, an electric tram running on elevated tracks, has had its share of fatalities. In August of 1967, within two months after its opening, 15-year-old Nick Y. tried to change cars in transit, slipped, and was crushed, wedged between the tunnel wall and the train. The first homicide at Disneyland happened in 1981, when Mel Y. was mortally stabbed in Tomorrowland. He was accused of touching someone's girlfriend, got into a scuffle, and was subsequently knifed. So, here's some more context to the first murder in Disneyland. I found an article in the LA Times dated March 9th, 1981, the day after the murder. Quote, Disneyland reported its first homicide in the park's history when an 18-year-old Riverside man was stabbed to death after an altercation with another man and woman, police reported Sunday. The incident occurred 10 p.m. Saturday, while the park was host to a private party for the Roar Corp of San Diego and Riverside, park officials said. The victim, Mel C. Yorba, was pronounced dead at Palm Harbor Hospital in Garden Grove, where he had been taken by Disneyland personnel. And if it sounds weird to you that Disneyland personnel transported this stabbing victim instead of EMTs, you're right to think that's weird. Just wait. Park security personnel detained Julie Hollander, 25, of San Diego, who was identified by witnesses as one of the alleged assailants. The other suspect had fled from Tomorrowland, where the stabbing occurred, and was apprehended by police who found him hiding in the bushes in Adventureland, investigators said. The second suspect was identified as James O'Driscoll of San Diego. Both he and Holdener were booked by Anaheim police on suspicion of murder and were being held in lieu of a $250,000 bail each. Park officials and police said it was not known what sparked the argument. A member of Yorba's family, the victim, said that he went to Disneyland with a friend and their two dates to, quote, have a good time. Three days after this was published, the LA Times gave more details about how Disneyland handled this homicide, and it's not good. After Mel was stabbed, he was put in the back of a Disneyland van and transported by a park nurse and two security guards. The van was not equipped with warning lights or sirens and had virtually no life-saving equipment aside from oxygen. The county's paramedics were not notified of the stabbing. Disneyland also transported Mel to the Palm Harbor Hospital in Garden Grove, which is not a trauma center. He arrived to the hospital in cardiac arrest and bled to death from wounds in his heart and liver. The chief of operations for the local fire department said he and his staff learned about the stabbing only when they read it in the paper the following day. He told the LA Times, quote, We've been talking to people at Disneyland about this for years. Something like this is pretty hard to swallow, especially when we had a station just one minute away. Our medical unit was three minutes away. Healthcare experts and city officials commented that Disneyland's reluctance to summon paramedics was probably based on the fear that their arrival would mar the park's image. Witnesses gave police the following account of what happened during the scuffle. The woman told her boyfriend, James O'Driscoll, that a young man had pinched her buttocks. 
She pointed in Mel Yorba's direction. James grabbed Mel, who was with a date and another couple. He accused Mel of pinching the woman, which Mel vehemently denied. When James refused to release Mel, Mel struck him. The two of them then fell to the ground during the altercation, and Mel was fatally stabbed. James ran away from the scene and was detained by park security officers. At some point, he apparently got away because when police arrived, they spotted James trying to get out of the park through a gate, then chased him through a railroad tunnel. He was found hiding in some bushes in another section of the park. So, within six weeks of this murder, a 34-year-old woman collapsed and died at Disneyland. This was really bad press for Disney, so they finally hired an ambulance service saying it wasn't permanent and that it wasn't in response to the two recent deaths. These medics drivers that they hired, however, are emergency medical technicians, not trained paramedics. They're only trained to know what to do until paramedics arrive. And still, Disneyland's nurse would be the one to decide if they call paramedics or transport the person in need themselves. As for James O'Driscoll, he was charged with first-degree murder and pleaded not guilty in late March. In October, he testified that the stabbing was an accident and made it seem like Mel Yorba and his two friends were the aggressors in the situation and not him, which directly went against the statements from witnesses. James also admitted to dumping the murder weapon in some bushes when he saw police coming for him, and he didn't explain why he had two knives on him at Disneyland in the first place. The knife used in the murder was eight and a half inches, by the way. On October 25, 1982, a mistrial was declared after one juror held out on a not guilty verdict. This was the only juror who believed James's story. The majority of jurors also eliminated the first-degree charge and opted for a second-degree murder charge instead. So the judge ruled that the prosecutors couldn't retry James for first-degree murder. Prosecutors took James back to court in May of 1983, and the jury found him guilty of second-degree murder. The judge called him, quote, a walking time bomb with a chip on his shoulder before sentencing him to 16 years in state prison. So he's probably out today unless he got in more trouble. Mel Yorba's family also sued Disneyland for $60 million, claiming it failed to provide adequate medical care. That trial began in the summer of 1986. Disneyland claimed their park nurse was at the victim's side within 12 minutes, but two witnesses said the nurse didn't arrive for 20 to 25 minutes after the stabbing, and then add on additional time of taking Mel Yorba to the hospital. That's a lot of time to be bleeding out. The nurse also testified that she was told by Disneyland officials to never call paramedics to the park. Doctors testified, though, that Mel's wound was so fatal, even if he had been stabbed in an operating room, he would not have survived, and that, quote, only God could have saved him. On July 22nd, a jury awarded Mel Yorba's mother and brother $600,000 in damages after finding that Disneyland was negligent. In September of that same year, the relatives made a settlement with Disneyland to avoid a possibility of an appeal. That way, they didn't have to drag the court process out even longer and possibly lose to an appeal. The amount Disneyland gave them was not disclosed, but I'm assuming it's less than the jury ordered them to pay. And now let's talk about ants. In August 1998, a 66-year-old nursing home resident in Jackson, Mississippi, taken outside to get some fresh air, was left unattended on the lawn in her wheelchair. Oh no, this is going to be rough. Unbeknownst to her or her aide, the wheelchair had disturbed a nest, causing a colony of fire ants to swarm over her body, and during the next hour, she was bitten hundreds of times. 
the woman, who suffered from Alzheimer's disease, died two days later. Venom from a single fire ant is minute, however, when an entire colony is triggered into a massive attack, the concentration of venom is toxic. Fire ants are insects that belong to the same order as bees and wasps. Many people are hypoallergic to even one bite. The venom contains several allergic proteins that can mean trouble for sensitive individuals, causing chest pain, nausea, dizziness, shock, coma, or death. And the fire ant fatalities since 1965 is 4,289. Okay, this one's just before ants, but I'm definitely going to read y'all this one. Anthrax. Five people were killed in the fall of 2001 by an unknown scientist who hoped to show the U.S. government how easy it was to launch a bioterrorist attack against the country. There were 16 total anthrax infections and 10 cases of inhalation anthrax disease caused via powder sent in now infamous envelopes. Anthrax disease is caused by a germ. I'm going to try my best to pronounce this. Bacillus anthracis? Anthracis? This is a prehistoric germ that has occurred naturally for tens of thousands of years in environments where herd animals graze and is currently found in soil all over the world. In the 1700s and 1800s, wool workers frequently became infected with anthrax. It's also possible to get it from eating uncooked meat, although inhalation of spores is the most deadly. There were 18 cases of inhalation anthrax in the United States between 1900 and 1978, and 224 cases of skin anthrax infections between 1944 and 1994, primarily infecting people working with animal hides. So, because we have the advantage of being alive far after this book was published, there's been a massive update in the anthrax murders investigation. The United States Department of Justice has a 96-page investigative summary, and it's dated February 2010. And I'm just going to read from the executive summary, which is just five pages long. In the fall of 2001, the anthrax letter attacks killed five people and sickened 17 others. Upon the death of the first victim of that attack, agents from the FBI and the United States Postal Inspection Service immediately formed a task force and spent seven years investigating the crime. Limitations on scientific methods prevented law enforcement from determining who was responsible for the attacks. Eventually, traditional law enforcement techniques were combined with groundbreaking scientific analysis that was developed specifically for the case to trace the anthrax used in the attacks to a particular flask of material. By 2007, investigators conclusively determined that a single spore batch created and maintained by Dr. Bruce E. Ivins at the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases was the parent material for the letter spores. Evidence developed from that investigation established that Dr. Ivins alone mailed the anthrax letters. So part one of this summary details the anthrax letter attacks. In September and October 2001, at least five envelopes containing significant quantities of Bacillus anthracis, also referred to as BA, were mailed to United States Senators Patrick Lehigh and Thomas Daschle in the District of Columbia and to media organizations located in New York City and Boca Raton, Florida. Each of the envelopes contained a photocopy of the following handwritten note, and this is right after the 9-11 terrorist attack. This first letter was to Tom Brokaw of NBC TV and editor New York Post. The top of the letter says 9-11-01, the date of the terrorist attack. And then in all capital letters, it says, This is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. And then in the letters to Senator Lehigh and Senator Daschle, 
Again, the date 9-11-01 is at the top, and then in all capital letters it says, You cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. At least 22 victims contracted anthrax as a result of the mailings. 11 individuals contracted inhalation anthrax by inhaling baculus anthracus spores, and another 11 suffered cutaneous anthrax by absorbing it through the skin. Five of the inhalation victims died from their infections. Robert Stevens, 63 years old, a photo editor, died on October 5th, 2001. Thomas L. Morris Jr., 55 years old, a postal worker at the Brentwood Post Office in Washington, D.C., died on October 21, 2001. Joseph P. Kersine, Jr., 47, a postal worker at the same office, died on October 22, 2001. Kathy T. Nguyen, 61, a hospital employee in New York City, died on October 31, 2001. And Audelie Lundgren, 94, of Oxford, Connecticut, died on November 21, 2001. So investigators found out that this strain of bacteria is called Ames and was isolated in Texas in 1981 and then shipped to USAMRIID, which is the military facility where scientists study infectious diseases. So obviously, whoever was mailing these letters wanted it to seem like this was another terrorist attack. And it wasn't until years later in 2007 that investigators learned Dr. Ivans was alone late at night on the weekend in the lab where this bacteria was stored. They ended up getting a search warrant for Dr. Ivans' electronics and all of his possessions, and it became clear to them that he was suffering significant psychological problems. They put a GPS tracker on Dr. Ivans' car, started going through his trash. They were really watching this guy. In November of 2007, they executed a search warrant for all of his belongings. They found a large collection of letters that Dr. Ivans had sent to members of Congress and the news media over the previous 20 years. And one of those was sent to NBC News in 1987 to the same address for NBC used on the Brockall letter. They also recovered three handguns, two stun guns, a taser, an electronic detection device, computer snooping software, and evidence that portions of the basement were being used as a firing range. They also recovered a bulletproof vest, homemade reinforced body armor plates, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, and smokeless handgun powder. By the summer of 2008, the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia was preparing to seek authorization to ask a federal grand jury to return an indictment charging Dr. Ivans with use of a weapon of mass destruction. But before this process was completed, Dr. Ivans committed suicide. He was aware that the FBI was investigating him and there was a possibility of him being indicted, so he took an overdose of over-the-counter medications on or about July 26, 2008, and died on July 29th. So that was even more evidence that this man was the person who committed these attacks. So what was the motive? According to Dr. Ivan's emails and statements to friends, in the months leading up to the anthrax attacks in the fall of 2001, Dr. Ivan's was under intense professional and personal pressure. Apparently, this man created an anthrax vaccine program, which he devoted his entire career of more than 20 years to, and it was failing. The vaccine was being criticized in scientific circles because of both potency problems and allegations that the anthrax vaccine contributed to Gulf War syndrome, and Dr. Ivans was scared that this vaccine program was going to be discontinued. But following the anthrax attacks, his program was suddenly rejuvenated because, of course, everyone wanted an anthrax vaccine. In the month before his suicide, Dr. Ivans and his homicidal tendencies became very much pronounced as he posted violent messages on the internet regarding a reality TV star and made death threats during a group therapy session. 
In the week after the first search of his residence in connection with the anthrax investigation, he threw out in the trash a book about secret codes that included a passage about using series of bolded letters to disguise a message, which was strikingly similar to the technique used in the anthrax letters. That night, he threw out the book, he went out into the street in the middle of the night in his long underwear, immediately after the garbage truck came out about 1am, and confirmed that his trash had been picked up. So, in summary, this was a crazy, failing doctor who was scared that his life's work was going to be discontinued, and in response to that, he used the 9-11 attacks to commit bio-domestic terrorism and make it seem like it was an attack by the same people who committed 9-11. And because people suddenly started dying from anthrax disease, his program suddenly became successful again. But unfortunately, Dr. Ivins was never held responsible for killing five people because he ultimately took his life. The next cause of death I picked was black widows, and it's not what you think. Women prefer to murder using this quiet, less violent approach. Those who have been caught killing with poison more than once are known as black widows. The two most infamous black widows of modern times are Mary Hilly and Nanny Hazel Doss. Mary Hilly poisoned eight people, including her husband, daughter, and mother-in-law. Once a doting mother and loving wife, she suddenly felt trapped and began to feed arsenic to her family from 1979 to 1983. Eventually, she was arrested and brought back to stand trial in the same small Alabama town that she considered too backward and had tried to escape by poisoning her way free. In 1987, while out on a three-day furlough from prison, she was seen wandering around the streets, picking through garbage cans. A few days later, she was dead of hypothermia and was buried next to the husband she had murdered. So now I'm going to give you all some extra background info on Miss Hilly, whose full name is actually Audrey Marie Hilly. And I just realized I was probably pronouncing her name Mary, but I think it's Marie. So Marie got married to Frank Hilly in 1951, and they went on to have two children, Mike and Carol. Her husband first became sick around 1975. This was after years of financial problems, mostly because Marie was spending more than her family could afford. In May of that year, after months of illness, Frank died from what doctors believed at the time was hepatitis. Marie was able to receive over $30,000 in life insurance for her husband's death, a policy he didn't know that she had taken out. Marie's son also suffered similar symptoms to his father and became sick at one point, but he eventually moved out of the home to become an ordained minister, and the illness suddenly went away. Three years later, in 1979, Marie took out a life insurance policy on her daughter, totaling $25,000. Within a few months, Carol started becoming extremely ill, and doctors had no idea what was wrong. Carol had to be hospitalized numerous times, and her mother continued to give her injections of arsenic, but told her daughter it was medicine to help her. She would also bring food to her daughter in the hospital, and told her daughter not to tell the doctors that she was giving her food and giving her these injections. In early September, Marie was arrested for two bad checks totaling $5,000. She tried to pass these checks to the life insurance company that held her daughter's policy, so that immediately made them drop the policy, apparently. So now Marie wasn't going to get a huge payout by killing her daughter. At the University of Alabama Hospital, doctors started to focus on the possibility of heavy metal poisoning affecting Carol. On September 24th, doctors called police about Carol's suspicious symptoms. Within a week, forensic scientists sampled Carol's hair and found arsenic levels over 100 times the normal level. This indicated to them that someone had been slowly poisoning Carol. And who would it be other than her own mother, who'd taken out life insurance on her 19-year-old daughter, and also had her husband mysteriously die years prior? 
That same day, police exhumed Frank Hilly's body and found that he'd been fatally poisoned by arsenic as well. 46-year-old Marie Hilly was charged with assault with intent to poison, a felony, and connection to her daughter's illness. At that point, she was still in jail for her bad check charges, and in her purse, police found a vial that contained arsenic. Her sister-in-law also found a jar of rat poison with arsenic as well. Marie was released on bail on November 9th and checked into a hotel under a fake name. By January of the following year, Marie was indicted on murder charges for the death of her husband, but she was nowhere to be found. Yep, Marie was on the run from police, and during that time, they continued to investigate suspicious deaths of people close to Marie Hilly. Traces of arsenic were found in Marie's mother and mother-in-law, but the amount wasn't fatal. An 11-year-old girl named Sonia was friends with Marie's daughter and had died from unknown causes in 1974. They exhumed her body but found only a normal amount of arsenic in her system. Sonia, along with two police officers, had fallen ill after accepting a drink from Marie at one point. By October of 1980, Marie was the subject of the FBI's most intensive manhunts in the Southeast. What's really crazy about all of this is that no one expected Marie to be a killer. Even after she'd disappeared and been charged, her daughter told reporters that she didn't believe her mother had tried to poison her. She said, quote, if she did it, she didn't realize what she was doing. The mother that raised me and my brother wouldn't have done something like this. Months later, though, Carol changed her mind and said she now believed her mother had killed her father and said she believed her mother is a paranoid schizophrenic. And this is where the story really gets weird. Marie Hilly escaped to Florida and started using the name Robbie Hannon. She met and married a man named John in May of 1981 and took his last name. The couple then moved to New Hampshire, and throughout their relationship, Marie always talked about her twin sister, Terry Martin, that was living in Texas. Marie never had a twin sister, but this was all a part of her plan. In the summer of 1982, Marie traveled to Texas and from there contacted her husband pretending to be the twin sister and said Robbie was dead and her body had been donated to science, so there was no reason to come there. There wasn't going to be a funeral. Posing as the twin sister, Marie continued to get to know John over the phone and help him grieve his wife's death, who was never really dead and was never really the person that he believed she was. Marie proceeded to lose weight, dye her hair, and travel back to John. But John's co-workers and family didn't believe this whole story about the wife dying and the twin sister coming into the picture, so they got authorities involved. Marie ends up moving to Vermont and working as a secretary. It turns out a falsified obituary for Robbie Holman caught the eye of New Hampshire police, who learned this was the sister of someone identified as Terry Martin, an alias that Marie Hilly had previously been tied to. Vermont authorities questioned her in the beginning of January 1983, and that's when Marie admitted she was wanted in Alabama. In June of that year, Marie Hilly was finally sentenced to life in prison plus 20 years. Even after all of that, Marie was seen as the model prisoner, and because of her good behavior, the warden was giving her day passes to leave prison. Of course, that backfired. In February of 1987, the now 53-year-old was given a three-day pass of freedom to visit her husband, John Holman. Yes, they were still married, even after she was convicted of murdering her former husband. On the last day of her freedom pass, John called police and said his wife had disappeared and left a note saying she was going to Canada. Four days later, on February 26th, a woman discovered Marie on the back porch of her house, dirty, wet, and freezing. She was conscious when EMTs arrived, but soon went unconscious and never woke up. They brought her back to the hospital where she died hours later from a heart attack brought on by extreme hypothermia. 
Nanny Hazel Doss, a sweet-looking woman, gave such a cheery confession to police after she was caught that the press nicknamed her the Giggling Grandma. Between 1920 and 1954 in Oklahoma, Nanny had killed four husbands, two children, her two sisters, her mother, a grandson, and a nephew with arsenic. She said killing was a cinch. Even though she collected life insurance on each of the dead, she was put in a prison for the mentally insane where she died of leukemia in 1965. In 1850, at a July 4th celebration held at the Washington Monument, President Zachary Taylor sampled numerous covered dishes donated by citizens. He became very ill and died three days later. Arsenic was found during the examination of his exhumed remains in 1991, and it was believed he was murdered, although the original death certificate listed cause of death as acute indigestion. Each year in the United States, arsenic kills 2,315 people. Autocastration. If you have balls, then you might want to skip this one. Throughout history, many ancient cultures accepted this act of self-performed castration, removing of one's own testicles, and even encouraged it. In ancient China, the Middle East, and many Mediterranean societies, the rich sought to hire the de-bald. Young male slaves of slight physique willingly cut away their testicles to escape the life of hard labor that the more masculine endured. The castrated, called eunuchs, were assigned to protecting and caring for the owner's harem, as it was believed that the castrated would not be at all interested in having sex. Hence, eunuchs often rose to esteemed positions within these cultures, becoming trusted servants and discreet confidants. Throughout the ages, eunuchs have been sought for theatrical purposes. In the 1500s, Constantinople issued proclamations to let it be known that church choirs wanted eunuchs for their soprano vocal range, as they retained the highest angelic voices long after puberty. Females were not permitted to sing. From the 16th century through the 19th centuries, the Italian Baroque operas of Rossini and Meyerbeer gave the castrati leading male heroic roles. Through the 20th century, even the papal choir gave places of vocal distinction to the castrated, the last of whom, Alessandro Moreschi, died in 1922. Apparently, 1,200 people die each year from auto-castration. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and special shout out to the new Patreon members, Holly L. and Jonah J. Thank you so much for becoming Patreon members, and to all of you, I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.